We'll be looking in Genesis chapter 49 uh, tonight, finishing up our series on the life of Jacob from Jacob to Israel, and uh, with a message I call the last will and testament. And we're going to be looking primarily at some passages in Genesis chapter 49, but we're going to look a little bit in chapter 47 and on into chapter 50 uh, to see the end of this story, uh, Genesis chapter 49 uh, and verse 1. And Jacob called his sons and said, Gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Gather together and hear, you sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. God has taken the events that were recorded in the lives of these pilgrim patriarchs and used them as examples to us of, of all the things that they did right when they got things right and also the things that they did wrong. Uh, they teach us then things that we can do and uh, things that we can avoid so that we would learn from their mistakes and hopefully not make the same ones. And uh, Jacob's story is covered literally from birth until his death. And as he nears the end of his life, Jacob, uh, the Holy Spirit once again pulls back the curtain and gives us a, a glimpse of, of one last scene in his life. Jacob would live to the ripe old age of 147. 147. No wonder when 17 years before he was still a spring chicken at 130, when he limped into Pharaoh's, uh, 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 I want to say palace, but certainly before his throne, and Pharaoh said, How old are you anyway? Oh, my goodness, hell, it's a spring chicken. 130. 130, but he would live 147 years. I want to look in chapter 50 then and, and show you some things about how the story ended. Verse 7, so Joseph went up to bury his father. And with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his house, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the house of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's house. Only their little ones, their flocks, and their herds, they left in the land of Goshen. How would you like to get behind that funeral possession? Wow. And uh, there went up from him both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great gathering. Then they came to the threshing floor of Athod, which is beyond the Jordan, and they mourned there with a great and very solemn lamentation. He observed seven days of mourning for his father. And when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Athod, they said, this is a deep mourning of the Egyptians. Therefore, its name was called Abel Mizraim, which is beyond the Jordan. So his sons did for him, that's jo uh, Jacob, just as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abram, Abraham brought with the field from Ephron the Hittite as property for a burial place. And after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers 
and all who went up with him to bury his father. That's the story. Now, when Jacob was sick, he had left very specific instructions. And uh, uh, when they wanted to make a, a solemn promise, you know, sometimes we will put our hands over our heart and raise our hand in the air. Uh, but, but for them, uh, when they wanted, wanted to make a solemn promise, uh, the Israelites would put their hand under the thigh. And the reason why they did that was because, of course, that was where the Lord had smote Jacob and, uh, and put his thigh out of joint. And so in that place where God broke him, and that became a sacred place to the people of Israel. And so uh, throughout antiquity, when they wanted to make a, a, a very solemn vow, uh, they would put their hand under someone's thigh. So he, he called him and, uh, to Joseph to him and told him to put his hand under his thigh and swear to him that he wouldn't bury him in Egypt. Incidentally, Joseph did the exact same thing uh, before he died. He called his people together and made them swear that they would not bury him in Egypt. So true to their word, uh, though Jacob was mummified according to the science of the Egyptians, uh, he was indeed taken to his ancestral burial plot and buried there. Now, I can only picture that scene in my mind. The Bible says all the elders of Egypt, along with a great company of soldiers, went on this journey. He was mourned. Not only was he embalmed according to the customs of the Egyptians, and of course they're pretty famous uh, for the way they buried their dead, uh, but also he was mourned according to that custom. So here was this great uh, procession going into the land of Canaan as Egyptians. Now, that wouldn't have been uncommon for them. I mean, we study to this day about the Valley of Kings and, and how they would take their burial possessions down there and, and, and bury those great men. And it was, a, it was a big, big deal to the Egyptians the way they buried their dead. But this one, instead of going south, had gone north. And here was this Egyptian... Uh, army and all of these Egyptian uh, members of the royal household and, and all of these Egyptian people. Why are they bringing their dead up here to our country? Well, it was quite a place for them. Abraham and Sarah were buried there. Isaac and Rebekah were buried there. And now... Jacob and Leah would be buried there as well. But what a difference between the simple burials of the other pilgrim patriarchs and this massive ceremony and lamentation that was made for Jacob. Joseph had lived in Egypt by this time for 40 years. And remember, 17 years before, when his brothers saw him, they didn't recognize him. He was more Egyptian than he was pilgrim. And now after 17 more years, as his brothers and family are moving along, when the Canaanite people of the land saw them, they didn't say, well, here's that bunch of pilgrims coming back. Here's that bunch of shepherds coming back. What did they say? Here's a bunch of Egyptians. Already, their lifestyle was dramatically changing. Their looks, the way they lived, 
You've seen that happen. You've seen that play out in your own life. You know, some of my uh, uh, family uh, has moved up north. Y'all know where up north is, don't you? <laughs> okay. I, I, I know. I'm, I'm among home folks, and I, I'm picking kind of because some of you folks are from up north. They moved up north. And you know what? They already talk like them. It doesn't take them very many years till they talk just like them. Some of those folks, they, they move down here, and then they go back and they say, you know, you talk just like them. They say, but we listen to them, and they don't talk like us. It's funny how that culture, though, that you live in rubs off on you. How quickly you can pick up the mannerisms, the dress, the lifestyle, the deportment of the culture in which you live. Um, God would go to great lengths after 400 years. The Bible tells us that Joseph went back to Egypt and all of his family went back to Egypt. There they were in Canaan's land. They went back to Egypt. It would be 400 years before they went home. 400 years before they saw the land of Canaan again. God would go to great lengths to get them out of Egypt. But he would have to go to even greater lengths to get Egypt out of them. Forty years of wandering in the wilderness, that was a lot of it. But there was more, more that he had to do. It's one thing, you see, to get the children of Israel out of Egypt. It was another thing to get, the, to get Egypt out of the children of Israel. And that's true of us too. It only takes a moment for God uh, to deliver us from this world, transport us into the kingdom of His dear Son. All we have to do is make that simple uh, prayer of faith, call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and at that moment, we are saved. Saved. We're no longer a citizen of this world. We're citizens of the next world. But you and I know it doesn't take long, God very long to get us out of this world, but it takes a long time for God to get the world out of us. Now, before he died, before that all played out, Israel, uh, that's Jacob, would call all of his sons together for one last family gathering. Like uh, his grandfather Abraham and like his father Isaac, Jacob would become a prophet in his old age, and he would utter prophecies, and the words that he gave to them were deeply significant. Now, the last words that you hear somebody speak to you that you love are precious to you no matter what. You remember them, and especially if that loved one was coherent, and they spoke to you something that meant something to them that they wanted you to hear and remember. It's always significant. This takes on added significance because when this prophet and patriarch Jacob called his boys together, he told them, I'm going to tell you what shall befall you in the last days. He told them right up front that his words were prophecies and promises. This is in keeping with the bestowing of that patriarchal blessing. And that's what Isaac was doing when uh, Jacob and Esau came before him. And you remember how that Jacob connived to get that patriarchal blessing. 
And then you hear the cry of Esau as he cried out, Bless me too, oh my father. Is there no blessing left for me? Patriarchal blessing was no small matter. So God has a future in mind for his people. That's what this passage is all about. And that future, though it included Egypt, it went beyond Egypt. That was what his uh, instructions to bury him in the land of Canaan is what Joseph was saying when he followed his father's example and said, you know, God is going to bring you out of here. And when he does, don't you leave me down here with these Egyptians. You take me home (laughs) and bury me with my people. And of course they did that. But in preparing them for that future then that God had in store for them, Jacob gave them some important messages. The first thing we'll see is that message of instruction uh, that he gave to Joseph. Now, Joseph had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, uh, that Jacob had claimed of his own. And he called Joseph to bring his sons into him. And as he approached uh, Jacob there, uh, he made the arrangement very carefully so that when they got to Jacob, His oldest son, Manasseh, would be in front of Jacob's right hand and his younger son would be in front of his left hand because the right hand conveys the greater blessing. No offense to all you left-handed people, Bill. I mean, the right hand confers the greater blessing. And so he goes with them uh, to approach his father so that when he stretched out his hands, It would fall in order so that the eldest would receive the greatest of the reward. In Genesis chapter 48 and verse 13, Israel stretched out his right hand, though, and laid it upon Ephraim's head. He crossed his hands. And he laid it upon Ephraim's head. He was the younger in his left hand upon Manasseh's head, guiding his hands wittingly, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph with his hands on his boys' heads. He blessed Joseph. And said, God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac did walk, the God which fed me all my life long until this day, the angel which redeemed me from all evil. Bless the lads. Let my name be named upon them in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac. And let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Verse 19 then continues, his father, after uh, Joseph tried to to rebuke his father and and correct him for putting his wrong uh, hand on the wrong head. He said, no, my son, I know what I've done. Uh, Verse 19, he shall also become a people and he shall be great, but truly his younger brother shall be greater than he. And his seed shall become a multitude of nations. And he blessed them that day saying, and thee shall all Israel bless saying, God, make thee as Ephraim and as Manasseh. And he set Ephraim before Manasseh, and Israel said unto Joseph, Behold, I die, but God shall be with you and bring you again into the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to thee one portion above thy brethren, which I took out of the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. Now, this passage then very clearly indicates that Joseph was given the blessing of the firstborn. And he was his firstborn by his beloved wife, Rachel. Long way from the firstborn son. 
You remember, of course, that Joseph was his favorite all along. All the way to the end, even in this moment, Joseph is getting preferential treatment. Yes, yes. But I would say in response to that, that in the providence of God, Joseph had well earned a double portion of his father's blessings. After all, had it not been for Joseph, they would have all died of the famine in the land of Canaan. Joseph was the way that God had preserved them all. He was the only reason they had anything to leave behind. But by giving his inheritance then to his two sons, you'll know there's not a tribe of Joseph, but there was a tribe of Manasseh and a tribe of Ephraim. And Ephraim, the younger, would be the greatest. Now, there's no indication anywhere that Jacob ever took anything from the Amorites. But that's what he said. I'm going to give to them one portion above thy brethren, which I took out of the hand of the Amorite with my sword and with my bow. This is a prophetic statement. It's talking about what these boys were going to do when they entered the land of Canaan and actually conquered uh, the land of Canaan. And Ephraim and Manasseh then would end up uh, overcoming uh, the Amorites. Through Jacob's words in this passage, Ephraim and Manasseh would be numbered as two of the twelve tribes of Israel. Ephraim would always be set before Manasseh. To this day, it's always Ephraim and Manasseh, never Manasseh and Ephraim. Always Ephraim, Manasseh. Ephraim's always first. The younger, always first. And so he gave them some instruction. Now, for us in our place today, we might wonder, well, what does that have to do with me? Well, some things we just need to know, and this is one of them. We need to know there's no tribe of Joseph, and why? You would think that somebody with such a prominent history, so intertwined with Jacob, that he would end up with this huge... Well, he did. But the way he did was through his sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And remember, we see then again this principle playing out... (laughs) That there came a time when Jacob's story was told through a son. There comes a time then when Joseph's story is told through his sons. Ephraim and Manasseh. Words of instruction. And they remind us that God is faithful to his promises. Then there is a message of correction. If there was a message of instruction and there was, there was also a message of correction. Genesis chapter 49, verse 3. Reuben, thou art my firstborn, my might, and the beginning my strength, the excellency of dignity, and the excellency of power. Unstable as water, thou shalt not excel, because thou wentest up to thy father's bed, and then defiledest thou it, he went up to my couch. Must have been quite a scene as this old pilgrim is leaning on that staff and standing before his boys. And there he is, a prophet right out of the Old Testament now. And not just pop, but now prophet pop. And he is speaking out not just his words, but God's words to them. And in this case, it is a word of correction. And he begins with Reuben, the oldest. He says to him, that you are the excellence, the beginning of my strength, the excellence of dignity, my firstborn, my might, and the excellency of power. I mean, he says it again and again, my might, my strength, my dignity, my power. 
Oh, Reuben must have been standing tall right about then. Oh, man. And then he hammers him. You are unstable as water. That is a very, very interesting statement. Unstable as water. Water, you see, will go down and down and down and down until it cannot go down anymore. That's what water does. It follows the path of least resistance. That's what water does. It is a very telling description of Reuben's character when he says, you are as unstable as water. And of course, with that kind of personality, it's no wonder that, God would, that Jacob would say to him, you shall not excel. <laughs> Let me just uh, point out to you tonight that you don't get very far in life and you don't get ahead very far in life if all you ever do is what you want to do. If the only thing that you ever do is, is follow the path of least resistance, that is not the path to excel and to do great things. Unstable is water. You're going to go down. And the reason why then that you're not going to excel is because, he said, you went up to your father's bed and defiled it. You went up to my couch. Jacob, you see, brought up that terrible business with Bilhah. Uh, his, Jacob's secondary wife, he was Rachel. She was Rachel's maid. It had happened a long, long time ago, shortly after Rachel died. When Reuben had an affair with Bilhah. And though Jacob heard about it, he had never said anything about it. It's a long, long time ago. We don't know why that he never confronted Reuben about what he had done. We don't know why he never confronted Bilhah. Some have suggested that maybe he was waiting all those years for Reuben to come to him and confess and make things right. But he never had. Many, many opportunities had come and gone when he could have said, Dad, I'm sorry, what I did was awful. Please forgive me. But he never did. So here, Jacob on his deathbed Brings that up. I don't think he was bringing this up just to kind of slap Reuben with it, although certainly he did. He was making sure that Reuben and all of his boys, because remember the whole clan was gathered together in front of him. He was doing this so that they would all know that that kind of conduct is unacceptable and must be abandoned. He wanted them to know that doing those kind of things would bring them down. It would not exalt them. It would not lead them on a path of success. It would lead them into a path of failure. And so he rebuked him. And in that sense, he also brought correction, not only to Reuben, but to all of his family. Then he turned to Simeon and Levi. 
After that, they must have been trembling. And, <laughs> and rightly so. Boy, what's he going to bring? Because they had some things in their history as well. Simeon and Levi are brethren, he said. Uh, that's our way of saying y'all are just alike. That's, uh, that's what Simeon and Levi are brethren. Instruments of cruelty are in their habitations. O oh, my soul, come not thou into their secret, unto their assembly. Mine honor, be not thou united. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they dig down a wall. Cursed be their anger, for it was fierce, and their wrath, for it was cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Once again, this had happened a long time ago. He is rebuking them for their anger and rage that led them to the, the, the slaughter of the inhabitants of Shechem over what had happened between Prince Shechem and their sister Dinah. You remember how that they deceived the inhabitants of Shechem by telling them, look, uh, uh, they wanted to get married and said, but now if you want to marry our sister, you're going to have to become one of us. And the way you become one of us is you're all going to have to be circumcised. And, and, and the Bible says that uh, uh, while they were circumcised, then Levi and Simeon attacked them while they were still sore and unable to defend themselves and killed all the men, killed them all. And took all their women, all their kids. It was a horrible thing. And even at the moment, Jacob told them, Now, you've made my name to stink among all of the inhabitants of this land that they had. But he brings them up to remind them. A warning. Remember, this is a word of correction. A word of correction. And even at this solemn, solemn moment of his own death, he is warning his boys. Reuben, I know what you've done, what you did. I always knew. You can't keep that kind of thing secret. I always knew. But now you need to know. You can't live that way. You can't act that way. You can't do those kind of things that you did, Reuben, and excel. It's going to pull you down if you do that. Simeon and Levi, you were cruel. Your anger was fierce. And anger and cruelty, he warns them. Anger and wrath and cruelty lead to division and scattering. And that's what he told them. You'll be divided and scattered throughout all of Israel. Book of Proverbs says this, Proverbs 28, 13, He who covers his sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. As is the case with Reuben, they had ample opportunity to go to their father and confess how wrong they had been, how terrible a thing it was for them to use their religion in such a way. One of the most sacred rituals. They never did. Maybe they thought it was forgotten. It wasn't. He who covers his sin will not prosper. But whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. Well, that's enough of that one.
Let's move to the message that points them to Christ. How about that one? A message of instruction. God has a purpose and a plan for you, and that purpose and plan is going to be fulfilled. God is going to use your time in Egypt, but he's not going to leave you in Egypt. He's going to get you out of there. And now he tells them about this message to point them to Christ, a message of correction. Yes, that had to come. Now pointing them to Christ. Verse 8, Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you've gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? Did I mention that Judah's like a lion? Lion, lion. You see that all over his thinking. He's a lion. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. Binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. And thank God for those prophetic sermons that so often contain messages of instruction, yes, messages of correction, yes, but then also offered them a message pointing them to Jesus Christ. And when he saw Judah, he saw Jesus all over him. He goes back to this passage, you see why, that the Messiah was called the Lion of Judah. The Lion of the tribe of Judah is right here. And so he is expressing uh, the prophecies and, and promise because it was out of the tribe of Judah that Jesus would be born, that the Messiah would come. And so when Jacob began to prophetically look at Judah. All he saw was Jesus. And many writers have, have expressed that this uh, Genesis chapter 49 is, is kind of like the judgment seat of Christ. One of them even called it the judgment seat of Jacob. And in this way, it is similar. When he looked at Judah, all he saw was Jesus. Now, Judah was not without fault. I mentioned Tamar this morning, so there's really no reason to go into that again, but that was his daughter-in-law, and that was a, a terrible thing that happened between him and Tamar. Um, he didn't mention that at all. There was all that business with Joseph, but he didn't bring that up at all. And so not only is it a picture of the judgment seat of Christ and the fact that when he looked at, at Judah, all he saw was Jesus. But it's also a picture of the judgment seat of Christ in the fact that the judgment seat of Christ is not convened in order to drag up a bunch of confessed and forgiven sins. You remember when Jacob knelt before Joseph, or when uh, uh, Judah knelt before Joseph and begged for forgiveness? You remember? The judgment seat of Christ is not going to be convened to drag up forgiven sins. And that's good news. When he looked at him, all he saw was Jesus. You know, that's a whole lot like what's going to happen at the judgment seat of Christ because we will stand there not with our own righteousness, but we're going to stand there covered with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That righteousness that is imputed unto us by faith. 
He would speak of the scepter, the symbol of imperial authority that would not depart from Judah. He looks ahead to the coming one and he calls him Shiloh. That's a messianic prophecy. And when he sees the coming of the Shiloh, isn't it interesting? He speaks of a colt of a donkey, of garments dipped in wine and blood. Reminds us of Isaiah 63. Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Bozrah? This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Our Jesus tonight is mighty to save. Mighty to save. And we'll close out tonight. There's a bunch more in here that he, ta- he had something to say to all of his boys. But uh, I've always liked what he said to Asher. Verse 20, bread from Asher shall be rich and he shall yield royal dainties. Who was Asher? Well, Asher was the son of Leah's handmaiden. Uh, that is, uh, he was born as the, the secondary uh, handmaiden, as a handmaiden to his secondary wife, Leah, the, 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 the lesser love wife. Talk about an inferiority complex in the making. I mean, this is, uh, he, was, he, was, he was not one of the more prominent members. He would not be a standout, but he was still part of the family. And it is no small thing to be a part of the family of God. He was still part of the family. And he had a message of encouragement to him. He might not be holding the scepter like Judah. But he said that Asher will yield royal dainties. Rich bread. And he would have something to offer the king. Uh, You may not be a a super talented person in the family of God tonight. uh, But I'm going to tell you something. If you can make biscuits, uh, that's a good thing. You make them good old homemade biscuits. That's even better. Not the canned variety. But I mean them good old homemade biscuits that are a miracle in and of themselves. I asked my mama one time how to make biscuits, and she told me, you know, just do this, 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 and I do this, and this, and this, and this, and this, and I made stuff that was hard as a brick. And hers just came out perfect and fluffy, and lather that butter on there and some pear preserves. And I mean, it's not heaven, but it's close. It's no small thing to be able to make biscuits for the king. Let me tell you something tonight. You might not be a super talented person, but you can make biscuits for heaven's king. You can. You can do what you can. Asher couldn't do what everybody else could do, but he could do what he could do. He was a member of the family. And so God gave him a message of comfort. Though he was never prominent in the family, he was still in the family. And let's face it tonight. There are a whole lot more of the members of God's family that aren't prevalent. A whole lot more that aren't prevalent than will ever be prevalent. A whole lot more of them that never stand out 
than those who do stand out. Even in the church, in our small portion of the family of God, there's far more people that don't stand out than those who do. God wanted Asher to know and God wants you to know that your service is not unrecognized by heaven's king. He sees what you do. You know, it may not be a standout, but he knows what you do. You do what you can. And always be thankful because, hey, you're part of the family. <laughs> you're in the family. And it's no small thing to be a part of this family. It is a great thing. A matter of great significance to be a part of God's family. So I ask you tonight, are you part of God's family? If you're part of God's family, there's going to be some instructions that God gives you. In fact, he's given you a whole book full of them. If you're part of God's family, there's going to be some correction that he sends out from time to time. Amen, doesn't he? Doesn't he? Can we nod our head like this sometimes? Yeah. He has to hit us pretty hard with the truth and make us face it. Yeah. But whenever he hits us with the truth and confronts us in our sin, he always points us to Jesus Christ. Because every one of those times is an opportunity for us to confess our sins because he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then he reminds us that though we might be an unnoticed kind of part of the family, not a standout part of the family, that whatever we do, and we do for heaven's king, it's going to be received by him. And it'll be a blessing to him and to us. And so in this, this prophetic message, Jacob, I see a great blessing for all of us. Because it tells us a lot about how our Heavenly Father deals with us. The question is, do you know him as your father? Have you received him as your savior? Because when we receive Jesus Christ... As our Savior, He adopts us into His forever family. Christ receiveth sinful men. Let's stand together, please.